welcome to another episode of WTAT Chats. I'm your host, Riley O'Neill, and today I have the pleasure of doing this podcast with a fellow podcaster. It's Ben Ladner, WCAT and Westminster alum, class of 2015. Ben, thanks for being here. How you doing, Riley? Uh, thanks for having me. I'm glad yeah, to be here. Doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. How about yourself? I'm hanging in. Yeah. Hanging in. Exactly. Um, so right now, Ben, you're a writer, podcaster, broadcaster. You really do it all in the sports world. But I was thinking to start off the podcast, we take it a couple years back to your time at Westminster with the Cats. You did a lot of WCAT, but also a, a, a team captain for the basketball team, all-time school leader and career three-pointers. Uh, what was your time like with Westminster basketball? Uh, well, it, it was, it was kind of up and down, I guess. I, I got cut from the seventh grade team, barely played on the eighth grade team, ninth JV, all that, and didn't play my junior year of varsity either. So, um, it really wasn't until my senior year that I became any good at basketball. <laughs> um, but I, I do, I do look back fondly on the process of getting there. And, uh, it took a lot of like time by myself in an empty gym to get, yeah. you know, to the point where I was even like a, a mediocre high school basketball player. Um, so yeah, I, I remember it fondly. It's certainly like, I think basketball in general, obviously it's the thing that I'm interested in now and having played it, I think it gives you, you know, an appreciation and understanding of the game to some degree, if you're going to cover it in any professional capacity. Um, but I think it's also just good as like a life skill or a life experience mm -hmm. to have where it gives you this, the interpersonal, the cooperation abilities that you're going to need for whatever it is, you know, so you can take a lot of the stuff that you get from playing a team sport. And I think specifically basketball, there's a lot of this and be able to apply it to a lot of different things in your life. And, and it's also good to, you know, be able to show up and play pickup basketball competently. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think in general, it was, it was really fun in the moment. And I think it's only served me well since then. Definitely, Ben. But you got to give your eighth grade self some credit because you hit some clutch free throws in the final <laughs> of that league final against St. Pius to seal the deal. Come I on. thought you were too young to know about that. I, I, I got my sources. Yeah, ben. I got my sources. Yeah, the only two points. Actually, no, I scored four points that game and they were all at the foul line. Uh, yeah, our, our starting small forward, Dart, or I, I guess uh, starting two guard, Dalton Light, got mm -hmm. like, I don't know, he got concussed or something. Uh, on a play. So I came off the bench. I had, I was not, I wouldn't have played were it not for that, but came oh. off the bench and, and hit a pair of free throws. We were already winning the game at that point and we ended up winning by 10. So uh, I think that the, those parts of the stories maybe get lost to history. Uh, but I guess the, the, the clutchness of it all kind of remains. Yeah. It works out. I mean, some clutch free throws got to give yourself some credit. Um, yeah, but five years not... from now, we'll have been down two points and I'll tell them it'll be a three pointer fade away at the buzzer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's what we'll go with actually. Um, but on the topic of Westminster basketball, uh, both girls and boys are making a push this week for the playoffs boys tomorrow, girls Wednesday. Um, so it's definitely a big week here on campus. Do you have any advice from your time looking back as a Westminster basketball player going into the playoffs? Got any advice for these students right now? Yeah, don't let up. That's that's what killed us. Uh, I remember playing, uh, I think, North Clayton in like the, the second round of the regional tournament or something. And we were up like 15 or 20 at halftime and ended up blowing the whole thing and, and mm -hmm. losing uh, like in the last five seconds. Some, actually, I think the game winning basket came over me, like some guy who hadn't made a jumper all game hit like a step back three uh, over my outstretched arm. And then we ended up losing. So we kind of just squandered this huge lead because I think we got a little complacent and, uh, and didn't take the second half as seriously as we had the first. So I would say 
no lead is safe um, and and continue to play as though you're down 15 and, instead of up 15. Right. Well, that's a tough memory, but you got any, uh, any favorite memories from your time uh, playing Westminster basketball? Oh man. Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of them, I, I think just in general, like I was saying earlier, the experience of, of being on a team and, and like that, that mix of, of people that we had uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, I remember a game I, I, you know, there were obviously like good games that, that everyone has where you, you know, you remember like the games where you score 20 points or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess there are specific shots, really the ones I, I remember to be honest are kind of the bad ones. You know, I, I still like, I remember missing a free throw to lose a game uh, at, at Woodward or at, like during one of the holiday tournaments or whatever. I remember getting blocked by, you know, the region player of the year on a shot that could have given us the lead in a, in a key game, you know? So I, I remember like all of the stuff yeah. that I could have done better. And I, like, I still, even to this day, like, dang, I wish I had made that free throw, man. I wish I'd just done this instead of this. I could have been open for the shot. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, re- I remember like, you know, hit a game winner against North Atlanta um, who became something of a rival mm. against us. It might've been the only shot I hit all game. Um, another one of those, right time. you you know, you get the undeserved glory, but yeah, I remember, you know, certain plays like that and, and shots and big moments and, um, you know, home games, things like that. It's just kind of flashbulb memories that stand out. And who was on that North Atlanta team? And then who was on that uh, Westminster team with you? Any names you remember? Yeah. So the, the big one for North Atlanta was Ethan stays who used to play mm-hmm. at Westminster. He was on our eighth grade team um, along with this guy named Daniel Giddens who ended up playing at Alabama and um, Ohio state in college. He kind of bounced around in college. Uh, but we had those two guys in eighth grade. They both left after eighth grade and Ethan ended up at North Atlanta for his last two years of high school. So that was always a game we took really seriously, especially by our senior year. Cause we had a bunch of seniors on our team. We knew him, you know, and that was, that was a game that we really wanted every time we played them. Um, and then for us, we had Will Benson who by that point was just a total stud. Um, I think the uh, Robert DeGolian was our starting point guard. We had Mikel Sampson and Zay Malcolm, uh, who I think are a couple of years older than you, uh, who were who were kind of our underclassmen at the time. Philip Jones, um, you know the Gillikin brothers, who who went on to play football in college. So we had we had a, a decently talented team, but it actually wasn't until the next year after I left that they really kind of took off as a program and you know were like a top three team in the state or whatever. Um, I'm, I'm, yeah, we had a decent team. Yeah, de- decent's a, an understatement. That's a lot of athletes right there. Gillikins, Benson, my God. Um, it really I, helped me out having like guys who could pass and dribble and like get to the basket. Cause I couldn't do any of that. So I, I could do one thing well on the court, but everyone else made it very easy for me to do that thing. So they, they made my life really, really mm-hmm. easy. You were sure though, you, I said it earlier, you have the uh, all time three point record here at Westminster. I'm curious because that game, when you, you passed the former leader and you became the all time three point leader. Did you know going into the game? Did you find out later? How did that situation? No, I, I really, uh, I didn't know till like after the season, I think it was just one of those things where it was like, there's no way that anyone has made this many like coach Malloy. Cause I mean, you think about the way the games kind of played, um, you know, it wasn't until about when I was in high school that the three even became like a, a thing that people did, let alone taking six or seven of them a game. Like I did. Um, so I think, it was sort of like, Hey, this is probably true. And then I think they went back and verified it. And it turned out like, you know, after the season, it was like, Oh, Hey, by the way, you like broke this record or whatever. Um, 
but no, I, I like, there was never a moment where I was like, I did it. I moved into first place I <laughs> past whoever. Uh, it was more just kind of like after the season was like, Oh, Hey, by the way, uh, you know, you became the, at some point in the season, we don't know when you became the, the mm-hmm. leading scorer. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and then obviously in the winter, you were all basketball, but in your other time on campus, you were all WCAT um, and did a lot with uh, the program that was pretty fresh at that point when you were getting started. In terms of WCAT, Ben, what were those first few broadcasts like compared to where you're at now? Oh, well, I was really bad uh, as a broadcaster when I first started. I, I've, I've not anymore, but like at the time I would go back and listen to, uh, to my first couple broadcasts and I was just terrible. But, you know, I was kind of all that we had at the time, which I think was a good thing for me, where I think for you now, I mean, you like you have to be really good to get on air. And and when I was there, I was kind of in that second wave of I mean, I was behind guys like Wiley Ballard, Matthew Shackelford, kind of the original, like who literally founded WCAT. Um, But I was I was not far after them. So it wasn't like this huge deal at the time. So that created a real pathway for me to get on air when maybe in, in other circumstances, I might not have deserved to get on air, but I think that allowed me to, to kind of cut my teeth a little bit, get the reps, you know, and improve to the point where by my junior or senior year, I was, a, you know, a pretty good broadcaster for a high schooler. And then I went to college and the whole thing started all over and you had to, you know, you meet the next threshold of quality to be considered good. But yeah, my first broadcast was an eighth grade girls basketball game. I think I was in ninth or 10th grade. And then, but you know, a year late, my 10th grade year, I was calling every varsity baseball game. I was doing most varsity football games again, just because there were not very many people who were doing this at the time. Yeah. And it was, it was something that if you were willing to put the work in, you, you could kind of create that path to get on air. Yeah. Well, once again, Ben, I don't think you're really giving yourself credit. Searle, I mean, he, he raves about you, says you were natural in the air and, and, uh, and knew your stuff too. So I, I do think that you were a, a great broadcaster and it wasn't just, just because there wasn't a ton of people there. Um, but you mentioned college and, and said Wayne from WCAT to then Indiana. How did getting those reps at a high school level, which is out of the ordinary for a lot of high schoolers, set you ahead going into college? It was huge. It was really, really huge. I think more than anything, it, it kind of gave me an idea of what I wanted to do. You know, like it, if, if not for WCAT, I probably wouldn't have realized, hey, I, this is something I want to go into and do in college and beyond. So if nothing else, it kind of set me on the path that I ended up on. And I think additionally, you know, you just getting the reps, knowing what you're doing, know, knowing how to create a spotting board to prepare for a broadcast, you know, to like the, the, to research names before you go on the air, like all of the sort of preparation, little things that you have to do to, to just be a, like a fundamentally sound broadcaster. I already knew to do those things and, and whether I was good at them or not, you know, that's, a different thing, but I, I knew like, I knew what I didn't know, I guess. And I also knew what I needed to know. Um, so even if I were like, I could have been the worst broadcaster ever, but I at least knew what I was doing. Exactly. Um, and then I think I, you know, I, I wasn't the worst broadcaster ever. I don't think at the time. So I, that, you know, it's kind of a layer on top of it where I was competent. I, I knew like how to deliver lines and how to, how to call the game. And, you know, I had a certain like style that I had been able to develop. Whereas I think most people, you come into college, you're like, Hey, it'd be fun to broadcast, but you have no idea what you're doing. You don't know the players' names. You don't know how to prepare. Uh, you don't know the sport. You, you don't know the art of broadcasting. So I think 
again, not that I was like this sensational play-by-play guy when I first stepped into college, but I was, I was able to get my foot in the door in the door in a way that a lot, not a lot of freshmen probably would have been able to, because they just not because they're worse or anything, they just don't have the experience. So I think that gave me a big head start. And then, um, you know, I, I didn't get a lot of broadcasting opportunity my freshman year of college, even having a background in it. But, you know, again, you're, you sort of are able to accelerate a little bit more quickly where I, by sophomore year, I was getting as much opportunity mm-hmm. as I wanted um, and, and, you know, as much as I could do with. So it, it was really like the buffer time between how long I had to wait to kind of get on air was smaller than I think a lot of people would have been just because I had that kind of baseline of knowledge and competence. I knew what I was doing coming in. Right. So when you say though, Ben, the, the art of broadcasting, what do you mean by that? Well, I think it's just knowing how to speak, knowing how to deliver your words and your thoughts, knowing how to, you know, artfully describe what's happening. It's really boring if you just say, you know, and there's, there's a, uh, let's, let's use Clint Capella, Hawks player. Clint Capella gets the rebound, you know, I mean, that's like really boring as opposed to if you say, you know, he, he picks that one off the glass or he sinks his talons into that one, you know, like being able to describe the action in an interesting way. That's the whole point, especially on TV. Cause if, if you're not going to be interesting, what's the point they're watching it for themselves. You know, there, you have to kind of bring something to the table. So I think that's really where the art of it comes in is just being able to to use interesting language and, and to, to tie things together and to, to tell the story. Cause that's what you're doing. You're telling the story of the game, especially again on TV where they can see it for themselves. So you're really just trying to create an interesting subtitle, an interesting caption to what's happening. Radio, I guess you're a little bit more nuts mm-hmm. and bolts what's happening, but even then there's a certain cadence, a certain pacing, a certain way of speaking that you kind of have to master um, in order, you, you can't just get on there and just start talking. You have to actually know what you're doing. So uh, that's that's kind of the way. I, and, and then again, the preparation, that's a big part yeah. of it too. That's yeah. like, I mean, I'm sure, you know, 90% of a broadcast is just doing the work before the broadcast that allows you to do the, the other 10% on the air. And that's the easy part if you've done your homework. And I think that's a big thing. I didn't realize certainly when I started out is like, oh yeah, most of the work is going to be before the game even starts, before the day of the game, you know, it's just getting yourself ready. And then by that point, it, it, it should be easy if you've, if you've done your preparation, if you've done your homework, you know, you know, all the answers, it's just a matter of filling in the right blanks, I guess. Yeah, very, very well said. And I completely agree with you. And we'll have to talk Clint Capella and Hawks later in the podcast. Um, but so you take that knowledge from WCAT, you go to Indiana, you get your bachelor's degree in journalism called tons of men's basketball games, wrote tons of stories about Indiana sports. What was their journalism program like and how did it help you become a better writer and broadcaster? It was great. I think a lot like WCAT, it, it there was immediate opportunity, but it, it was still competitive. You know, I think you don't, you, you want to like have the period where you have to you have to earn it, right? I mean, you don't want to just be in a situation where you walk in and you're the only option. So you're on the fast track to, uh, you know, to getting all the opportunity or whatever. But you also don't want to be in a situation where it's so competitive and there's so many people and there's so little opportunity for newcomers that you're never never able to get the reps. So I think Indiana was the right mix of, you know, I had to to earn it. And there was like that that freshman year where I just like, you know, wasn't getting many broadcast opportunities because I didn't deserve them. And I had to work my way toward that. But there was also the path 
you know, it was ready if, if you were willing to work for it. Whereas in a lot of places, you know, you could look at like a Syracuse, um, just as an example, they're kind of famous for this, you know, you can work as hard as you want and you may not get any opportunities to call a men's basketball game or whatever till your senior year, just because there's that many people and there's that little opportunity. So I think at IU, there was, it was the right amount of, of, you you have to put the work in, you have to earn it, but you're also, that's going to pay off if you're willing to Mm -hmm. do it. Um, so for me, that was, that was really important. That was like something I was looking for going into college was just like, you know, is it, is it going to be competitive? Cause I wanted that, but I also didn't want to just be, you know, stuck on a, yeah, stuck, not able to do anything. And then as far as the writing thing, that was actually mostly kind of outside of the sports journalism department. Although certainly the sports journalism department played a role in kind of pushing me toward that. Uh, but most of my opportunity there came from just outside like you know random basketball blogs on the internet or whatever um because at the time i mean there really wasn't a lot of like writing unless you were work for the school newspaper there weren't a lot of writing outlets at, at the time mm-hmm. and probably even less so now because video and podcasts have become such a, a prominent medium but uh yeah so so i had to kind of outsource a lot of the writing but the broadcasting it, it was a really a really good kind of cultivation ground for me and you found it on your own. How did how did that work for you, Ben? Well, I, it, it, like I said, it started kind of through the sports media okay. program where they, they send out emails and say, hey, you know, these are the opportunities that you can look into if you're interested. They did those, those periodic kind of email all calls. And so I just found like a, a job application or a, really an internship application through one of those. Started writing for a website called Global Basketball, which is like this tiny basketball blog that I'm sure very few people read, but that was really good for me because, you know, like as a broadcaster, I started out as a writer being really bad at writing. So it was good to kind of have the year that I needed Mm -hmm. to cut my teeth and get to the point where I wasn't bad at writing. And then I could, you know, I was, it was less embarrassing to like put my stuff out where more people were going to see it. So Mm -hmm. in in a way, I'm actually kind of glad that no one was probably no one was reading the first, like, 50 articles I ever wrote because they were probably terrible. <laughs> no, nah, I doubt it. Um, but Indiana, Indiana basketball uh, is diehard basketball from an inside perspective, actually being there, writing about it, talking about it, announcing the games. How intense is basketball at IU? It's a big deal. It's a really, really big deal. Uh, they take it really seriously. Obviously, I think anyone who follows college basketball probably realizes that. Um, I would say there's maybe a little bit of a sense of false optimism at times, which is how any fan base is. But I think when you have so many fans and they care so much, the, uh, you know, the, the perception is more likely to not line up with reality. And when I was there, the reality was that they just weren't very good. And so I remember writing a lot of articles talking about how they weren't that good and getting a little bit of pushback based on, no, you're, you know, you're just being pessimistic or whatever. And um, yeah, but that's, that's part of it. But I mean, certainly like, when they were good, when they were playing well, it was really exciting to be in assembly hall for a big game. Mm-hmm. I remember calling, I had a couple calls of, of what ended up being really exciting games and the energy in that building. I mean, it's one of the, the most storied venues in college basketball. And when it's full and when it's loud and when the team is good, there are a few places that are better to, to call a game from. So that was a really, a really cool experience and a really cool opportunity that not a lot of people have, let alone college students. Um, But I think coming from Atlanta or just coming from outside of Indiana, 
where I had no attachment to the basketball program. I've never been a fan of Indiana basketball, really, with the exception of like a month during my freshman year. I've, I've never had like a, an emotional investment in the team. I think that was a really good thing for me because I, I just, I analyzed the team dispassionately mm-hmm. and I said what I saw and, you know, it gave me, I think, a really good kind of clear-eyed viewpoint of what was going on. And if people disagreed with that because they were too close to the situation or they, they were more optimistic than I was or whatever, maybe I was just wrong. Um, but whatever it, it was, like if people disagreed, that was fine. But I think for me, I always really appreciated covering a team that, that I really didn't care about. Like, I mean, obviously it's more fun to cover a good team and all that. And you don't want anyone to get injured. Like you don't want bad stuff to befall anyone, but whether they won or lost, it made no difference to me. Mm. So I think that really helped me take just a clear eyed approach toward covering the team. And, you know, I was, you know, it's just kind of, here's what's happening and, and you can make sense of whether that's good or bad, but you know, this is, this is the reality. And I, I didn't feel the, the, you know, the impulse to, to paint it in any way that it wasn't, I didn't feel the, the need to be overly positive or overly negative. It was just like, you know, as if I'd, I'd landed in a, a different country and it was like covering this sport that I'd never heard of. And you just asked me to, to explain what was going on. That's kind of the approach I tried to take. And that was a lot easier yeah. because I wasn't from the area. Right. Really good point. And when you talk about a journalist's role, do you prefer writing those opinion pieces, the critical pieces, or just reporting the general facts? I prefer the opinion and analysis type of stuff, but I think that has to be rooted in the facts. You know, it's, it's like, you can have a take, but you gotta, you gotta back it up with something. And really, I don't even have that many takes. It's more just kind of like interpret, I would, I would call it more like interpretation rather mm-hmm. than yeah. take, but like, you know, you can say this is good or this is bad, or this guy should play more, or this guy should play less or whatever, but you got to have evidence for why that's the case. You know, it's not just like, I hate this guy, so he should stop playing or something, <laughs> you know? So you can, you can kind of marry the two and say, Hey, here's, here's what's happening. Here are the facts. Here's the reality. And here's what that could mean. And maybe that's where you put in your own spin on it and say, mm-hmm. you know, this is how I'm interpreting this set of facts or, you know, so maybe you have a hypothesis and you're like, I'm going to write an article just to see if this is true. And then you look at the facts and it either confirms or contradicts what you believed. And then you kind of spell that out in a way that makes sense. So I think for me, it's always the opinions come from the facts and then the, the, you know, I use more facts to kind of back up the opinion. And do you have any uh, hot takes, if you will, on this, this NBA season going on right now, Ben? Well, I think Gary Trent should play more for the Portland Trailblazers. And I think Carmelo Anthony should play less. That's really the only thing <laughs> that like really gets me going just, just is, you know, makes me, and I'm not even a fan of the Blazers. You know, I, I don't, I don't care whether they win or lose. It's just like, it feels like there's this obvious solution staring them in the face. That's usually the thing that, that, uh, that even as a non-fan of a particular team just like frustrates me is when it's, there's mm-hmm. it seems like there's this obvious decision that, that should be made, but yeah, that, that's my take is that Gary Trent is better than Terry Stotts realizes and that he should play more. So why Gary Trent though? Mello, Mello's a legend. You got any uh, facts, if you will, to back that up? Well, it's because he's not good anymore. Uh, he's, he's a scorer who can't score efficiently. Um, he's, he's a floor spacer who won't space the floor. <laughs> uh, he's a, a combo forward who can't defend. Um, and so I, it just, it's unclear to me like what he brings to the table, talking about Mello, 
um, for that team. Whereas Trent, like he's, he's not as, as skilled necessarily as a shot maker. He doesn't have the post moves, all that, but do you really need that when you have Damian Lillard? And I guess they don't have CJ right now. I would rather have a guy who can shoot 40% from three on a high volume, defend multiple positions, handle the ball a little bit, make good decisions. Cause the thing with Melo, it's not just that he takes, you know, bad shots from 17 feet with a hand in his face. It's that you have to spend 15 seconds of the shot clock clearing the side of the floor, throwing him the ball, letting him do all his jab step over the head, pump fake type of stuff, get into his move. And then there's 11 seconds left on the clock and you've wasted half your possession. So the opportunity cost of involving Mello in the offense is super high because he has to have the ball in his hands and he's taking up so much time to do what he needs to do, which even if it works, isn't really even that valuable. And the other thing I would say is that the Blazers offense is eight points worse per 100 possessions mm. with him on the floor. Uh, whereas Trent, they're, be- they're better with him on the floor on offense um, as opposed to with him off. So I, again, it's just yeah. like these, these things that seem, that seem obvious to me. I'm sure there's maybe a reason why, you know, they, I, I don't know. Like, you convince, I'm going to have to send this over to coach Stotts. He, he's yeah. going to have to take a listen to this episode, but yeah, it's just, the, it's, it's the general frustration with Melo. not to go on the whole tangent, but for me, it's always just like, if this were anyone else, we would say that's a terrible shot. He shouldn't yeah. be taking that shot. But if for, you know, when you have the pedigree and you have the resume, you get away with more. And that's, you know, that's, that's not to discredit anything that he's done, but at this point, it's just like, that's not a, it's not a good way to play basketball. And uh, it's it's hurting the team. So I don't know. That's just a thing that's confused me. No, and no, I talk I, about this it, with my friends all the time too. We just get immensely <laughs> frustrated over this. You get a little heated, right? Um, well, now to segue to NBA, since we're on the topic, you graduated Indiana, obviously 2019. Started to get your feet wet in NBA, and then COVID hit. Uh, were you actually in the building for that final NBA game, Hawks Knicks? I was. So talk to me or walk me through that feeling and, and getting that Twitter notification. I know I got it on my phone, NBA season suspended indefinitely. What's that like from your perspective? Well, my perspective was the media seating on the, uh, the, uh, the top of the first section of the, of the stands in oh, State yeah. Farm Arena. And uh, I know that game went to either overtime or double overtime or Mm-hmm. something, but I couldn't tell you a single thing that happened in the second half of that Hawks Knicks game wow. because at that point it was just like, okay, they're postponing the game in Utah or in, in Oklahoma city between Utah and OKC and someone, you know, the, the trainer rushed out on the court and told the ref something and like, what's going on? Is it COVID? Did someone test positive? And then 30 minutes later, like, yeah, Rudy Gobert tested positive. Yeah. Okay. Is this game going to get, are they going to stop this game in the middle of it and and just be like, that's it. Um, they announced they were postponing the season, but the Hawks game was still going on. So you know, what, what's the deal there? I remember looking at some of the other media members, Chris Kirshner of the athletic was sitting a couple seats down for me. And we just looked at each other like, what is going on? Like, are you seeing this? What's happening? <laughs> and so for me, I was trying to watch the game, but I was also writing a story about what was going on in OKC, you know, and trying to just, you know, kind of blast the news around and, and be like, you know, NBA season shuts down and, and get that story out. I think I wrote like three or four stories that night too. Cause that was also Vince Carter's last game potentially. And there was like, you know, that was the kind of the big topic of the post game media session. So I wrote a little bit about that had to actually write about the game, which I didn't remember very much from, uh, I had to, 
you know, cover the COVID situation. So it was all just a, a crazy situation. Um, and looking back, you know, like it was, it was a pretty dangerous situation too, because no one was wearing masks by that point. We didn't know to do that. We were sitting in our normal seats. You know, if there were fans in the arena, no one's spreading out, which obviously now we know to do all these things. But at the time it was like, you know, well, it, we don't know anything about this virus. So we're just going to, you know, I was sandwiched in between two people in the post-game media conference because we didn't know any better. And I actually had a cold at the time. So I was like sneezing oh, wow. and I didn't know if it was COVID or not. No one did. And we'd learned later, like sneezing's not really a prominent side effect, <laughs> but no one knew that at the time. So everyone was like, oh my God, don't get me sick. You know? Uh, so it was just a very, very surreal experience. And even like talking to some of the players afterward, they, they found out during the game, you know, they would like during a free throw, they'd hear from a player on the other team, like, Hey, did you hear the season got suspended? And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know? And so they're finding out during the game, um, the fans are finding out, like you can see fans looking at their phones and talking to each other and saying, Hey, look at this. And, uh, so it kind of, it was interesting to see the news kind of ripple through the arena at different times. And everyone's kind of finding out asynchronously. And then eventually it's like, this is a big wow. deal. This is going to be a real inflection point. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And then in the morning after, as a sports writer, now all sports are pretty much gone in the next coming days, sports completely get shut down. How did that affect you and your profession? Yeah, it was tough. It was tough because I always kind of looked at, at the, the SI gig as like a one-year thing. So it was like, all right, when this season ends, I'm going to, you know, that's, I'm going to use that as a jumping off point or whatever. And then that just got, everything got frozen at that point. So it was sort of right as I was about to sort of make the transition, it was like, Nope. These doors are all closed now. Uh, so that was an interesting thing. Um, but you know, the, as far as the, the, the first month or so wasn't too bad because there was generally enough news, either Hawks related or league related that I could, I could keep writing pretty consistently and have something to talk about. It started getting repetitive about a month and a half in where it was like, all right, the NBA just put out a press release that was the same as their last press release. You know, what am I supposed to do with this? Right. Um, and then by that point, you know, I used the first month or so, two months or whatever, to do the, you know, player season review, team season review, sort of like, um, you know, the gimmicky postseason stuff that you write, five things that the Hawks can do for next season, three free agents or whatever, like all of that postseason wrap-up stuff. I did within the first month or two. And so after two months, it was like, okay, well, I've already done all of the off season stuff, you know, and there's no news coming out now. So what am I even doing? Like there's, there's literally nothing to talk about, but you still feel like you had to talk about something. So that was just a really tricky thing to, to figure out, you know, it's just like, and I think everyone faced this problem in the sports media mm -hmm. world is what do we talk about? Like there are literally no sports. This has never happened before. You know, it, usually in the NBA off season, you get a, a vacation or you can write your regular off season stuff. But when the off season lasts four months and there are no other sports to talk yeah. about, nothing, there's nothing going yeah. on. So, you know, at that point it was like, uh, it was like, there's nothing left here for me, you know? So I ended up leaving SI after a little while and uh, have kind of just been working and freelancing and figuring things out since then. Yeah. But I mean, I looked and you guys were still, you and John were still doing read and react podcasts pretty much. Yeah. All still keeping through. that up. Yeah. So how did that, I mean, what do you talk about on an hour long podcast when there's literally no sports? Yeah, that, I, th I think you can do a little bit more evergreen stuff there. Yeah. You know, we did, we did like uh, 
players we'd like to see in the modern NBA kind of stuff, just like themed episodes. And, and we even, yeah. we, we took like, we would go several weeks between episodes at times, mm-hmm. you know, if there was nothing to say. So, and, and that's always like, that's always kind of been my approach to this is like, if I don't have anything to say, I don't want to say anything. Yeah. But there are times when you're sort of mandated to say something, even if you don't have anything to say. So that's always been uh, like a, that, that for, I think for me, particularly, that was a, a very like difficult kind of quandary to, to work through is like, this, this is very against my nature to just blow hot air onto the internet, you know, and when there's really nothing to talk about. Yeah. Um, but then fast forward a couple months, NBA bubble starts to take shape. There's reports about it. Um, only a certain number of teams are allowed in and obviously no media members are allowed in. So from a sports writer uh, perspective and point of view, how did that work? Did you do zoom interviews with any of the players or coaches, or was it just sort of, you know, sports are back and I'm a write about what's going on. Yeah, it was more of the latter. I, I, re- I didn't cover the bubble at all. I thought about like putting in an application to go down to Orlando because what else yeah. was I going to do? Uh, but I figured like there's they're letting in like 25 people. So right. there's no way that I'm going to be one of those 25, at least initially. Um, I did send a couple texts to like editors like, hey, you know, like tongue in cheek. I only want to sneak couple, me in or something. Yeah, I'm only a couple hours from Orlando. So <laughs> if, if you need someone to go down there. Um, no, but for me, it was it was more just watching as a fan of the league and then I still wrote and still did the podcast and was still like paying close attention and covering it to some degree, but it was, it was not like the every day on the ground in the trenches type of thing that you do as a beat reporter Mm -hmm. or as a national media member covering the bubble. It was much more at a remove from the whole thing. Yeah. Um, And now that bubble's gone, NBA is back in full swing um, after the NBA finals Somewhat back to normal, lots of moving parts, all-star selections are coming in. What storylines, teams, players are you focusing in on right now or uh, catching your eye? Well, the team that's caught my eye right now is the Utah Jazz, who have the best record in the league uh, in the Western Conference, which is, I think, widely considered the more difficult conference. They're 22-5. and They have the best net rating in the league. Uh, They're about to be tested pretty significantly in the next couple of weeks. They've already started kind of going through that process of playing better teams. Um, but if they come through this next month or whatever, you know, with let's say 26 and eight or something, mm-hmm. you know, um, if they're, if they're still looking good going into the all-star break and, and have the best net rating or the best record or whatever, I think we have to talk about them as a championship contender, even though they don't have like the, the top end talent of a Lakers or a Clippers or even a Bucks. Um, they're, they're one of the most complete teams in the NBA. They're the only team with a top three offense and a top three defense, only team with a top five offense and top five defense. Um, and, and they're just really balanced on both ends of the floor. There are questions about them, obviously, that you could go through as with every team. And I don't think they're the front runner or anything, but you know, at some point the evidence just, it, it starts to scream one thing. And I think right now it's telling us pretty, pretty loudly that the jazz belong in that conversation, maybe not equivalent with the Lakers and the Clippers, but, Mm-hmm. not much more than a step below. Yeah. And it's funny, Ben, cause I've seen a couple of things floating around Twitter and some articles that I've seen. Um, but is this team at all, because there's not just one or two, you know, superstars, does this team remind you of that 2015 Hawks team when it was just sort of a complete roster? A little bit. I think there, yeah, I mean, there are similarities, certainly the two way balance being really efficient on both ends of the floor, having a system that works on both ends 
I think they they probably have a little bit more offensive firepower than that mm-hmm. Hawks team, if only because Donovan Mitchell is just better in isolation yeah. than anyone the Hawks had. I mean, you look back and it's kind of a miracle that the Hawks were a top three offense that year with with really no true like pick and roll eat you alive type of guy or, or isolation threat or whatever. Um, so I think Utah has a little bit more of that. They just have more individual creativity. Obviously, Rudy Gobert is a much better defender than anyone on that Hawks team was. So I think they're a little, a little more airtight, a little more bulletproof, which is not to say they're totally airtight or bulletproof, but I think a little bit more than that Hawks team. Yeah. Uh, even and, and I think they actually have a better like point differential and all of that. So I think by the numbers, they're, they're better, better as well. But certainly you look at the lack of a top 10 player. You could argue Gobert's in that range, but I would mm-hmm. count him out of it. And you, you kind of look at, at that and say, okay, you know, they're, all of their guys are kind of between 12 and 50 on the you know, best players in the NBA yeah. ranking. So it's just a, a really balanced and, and um, dynamic team without a lot of weaknesses. And so I think in that sense, there are quite a few similarities. Um, and and they, they also could have a little bit of 2020 bucks to them as well, where they're this really good regular season team. And it turns out in the postseason, they just don't have that extra gear. I tend to think they are a little bit more versatile and flexible than those bucks, but we're going to have to see it. I think that's the big question with Utah is like, can they do anything other than what they do? Which, which is to say that they're really good at the things that have made them good in the regular season. Right. Their, right. their defense built around Gobert. That is as perfect a defense as you can play in the regular season. But what happens when you're facing LeBron James in a playoff series and he's, yeah. you know, and they're kind of targeting Gobert and they're running their, targeting Mike Conley and making him defend. Do you have other gears? Do you have other mm-hmm. looks that you can throw at an opponent that are different from just your base defense? Same on offense. You know, when, when the ball movement is, when the ball's not humming around as, as seamlessly as it has in the regular season, when you have to create an isolation, when you need guys to make individual plays, can you play that sort of style? If you're taken out of your first option, do you have the plan B and the plan C and in some cases, the plan D. I think that's the question that Utah is going to have to answer. Right. A lot of great analysis here, which I'm sure is very prevalent on your Read and React podcast, which I wanted to talk about a little bit. Sure. Um, can you explain how you, you met your co-host, John, how you got into podcasting and how Read and React really came to fruition? Yeah, so John and I covered the 2019 Indiana basketball team together. He was with, uh, who was he with? Rivals, maybe? Mm-hmm. I don't know. He was on the beat for, I think, two years. Uh, that was my last year in college. So we kind of just became friends from working around that beat together. And then we ended up, you know, as we kind of got to know each other, having some conversations about the NBA and he would like come over to my house and we just talk about the NBA for five hours. <laughs> and so eventually it was just like, well, you know, well, yeah, we should make a podcast. Yeah. That was, that was really just the thinking is like, you know, if we just put microphones in front of us, I guess that's, that's kind of a dangerous game because there are a lot of people who have thought that, and thought we should make a podcast. And then it turns out really they shouldn't have made a podcast. <laughs> um, so that we, we were, you know, trying to be aware of that too, but yeah, we, I mean, it just felt like there, there seems to be a lack of like really substantive nerdy NBA discussion right now. I mean, there, obviously there is that like dunked on thinking basketball, like you can get that if you know where to find it, uh, but it just felt like that that wasn't always the focus of a lot of NBA analysis. And so, we were like, what if we just do like bare bones, nitty gritty NBA talk as often as we want to, you know, we're, you know, it's, we don't have a schedule. We don't have a, a 
time limit or it's really just like a, we don't make any money from it. That's for sure. So it's just a labor of love where it's like, Hey, we like talking about the NBA. We feel like this can add value, you know, whether it's five people or 5,000 or whoever, you know, we feel like this can at least be valuable to someone. So why don't, and it's fun for us. So why don't we just put it out there? Yeah, no, you're right though, because a lot of the NBA and really sports talk in general nowadays is just like a guy like Stephen A just screaming at somebody from across the way. And it's just a lot of going back and forth and arguing, whereas your podcast is more really diving deep in, having that nerdy talk, if you will, and talking statistically and, uh, and just about the league in general. So I think that's actually a great idea. And I encourage all of our listeners who are listening to WCAT chats right now to actually give read and react to listen as well. Yeah. Thanks um, man. Yeah, no, of course. Um, but I got to ask from, from your podcast point of view, what's the deal with the Hawks right now? Lots of free agency moves in the off season, uh, but not, not a ton to show for it. Yeah. It's interesting because, they had, you know, last year it was like, okay, you get, you've got the core five, you know, Trey Young, Kevin Herter, Cam Reddish, DeAndre Hunter, yeah. John Collins, that's going to be the team. And then they have this off season and it's okay. They've added Gallinari and Bogdanovich and Rondo and Capella's coming into the mix. And so now the core five, so to speak, as Lloyd Pierce likes to call it, is not as much of a thing. And it's like, okay, well, are those guys even going to play together this year? What's, what's the deal with Gallinari? Is Collins going to play the five? Are they going to trade Collins? And then it turns out all the new guys get injured except for Capella. <laughs> Literally. So then it's like, yeah. well, actually they need the core five to play together uh, with, with all those young guys with Collins at center. And that group has actually been pretty good for the last two years. Mm-hmm. I think quietly they've, they've been a pretty good two way uh, dynamic team, but you know, that's, it's probably not a sustainable thing for your, as your main entree, so to speak. Uh, so it, it sort of worked out where like the team that they thought they were going to have at the end of the 2020 season was the team that they had in the 2021 yeah. season. It was just this circuitous thing where they added a bunch of free agents and then those guys weren't available anymore. And now obviously DeAndre Hunter is injured. Some of the new guys are back. And so it's, it's a little bit more of a, of a mix there, but I think the story is similar to last year, frankly, where it's hard to know what this team is because they've been so injured. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think they've played, more than one or two games with the whole rotation. And even then Bogdanovich was terrible when, when everyone was healthy, you know, Gallinari has had his ups and downs. Chris Dunn hasn't played a minute this season. So it's, it's really hard to tell what this team is. Yeah, You know, they had that really good start with the top 10 defense and it was looking like maybe they'd be able to survive some of that. They're now a little closer to the middle of the pack at 11 and 15 with a slightly negative net rating. So that they look like, you know, kind of the team that, that, I thought they'd be at least um, maybe a little worse on offense, but they're, they're right toward that middle of the pack competing for the eight seed in the Eastern conference. That's about what I expected. But I, I think it begs the question of, you know, if, if they're treading water without Bogdanovich, without Hunter in the lineup, what's going to happen when those guys get back in? I think there's reason to believe that they could improve, but at the same time, like what reason do we have to believe that those guys are all going to be healthy at the same time? Like the last two years, has just been the Hawks fighting off injury after injury, after injury, after suspension, or what mm-hmm. have you. So it's, you know, it's just, we haven't seen this team really at full strength, which kind of makes it hard to, to really know what it is. But if there's any year for that to happen, I think it's this one where everything's kind of bunched together. You win three or four games in a row and all of a sudden you go from eighth to fourth. Um, and so it's just a little bit more fluid than it's been in recent years. So I think there is some wiggle room for them to kind of weather this, this storm that they're kind of in the middle of. And then if they get 
a healthy roster at some point, you know, maybe there's a chance that they kind of make a run and establish themselves as a more comfortable playoff team. Uh, but right now it's, it's been a grind. I haven't watched as much of them in the last couple of weeks, but it's been, it's been a little bit of a slog from a late yes, game perspective, yeah. from an offensive perspective. That's the big surprising thing to me is I think they're like 17th in offense right now. Mm-hmm. And I thought they had the bones of like a top five to 10 offense coming into the year. And again, injuries have played a part in that, but they just haven't been that dynamic unit on that end of the floor. And their defense has been better than expected, but I think at some point they're going to need to find that offensive gear. Yeah. It's interesting though, because Trey Young looks better than he did at least at the start of the season when he was off to a pretty slow start. Um, and then with that Bodanovich injury, do you think Trey is, is better without Bodanovich? Do you think that would affect his play at all? I don't know. It's, it's hard to know um, mm-hmm. just having not seen them together. I think Bogdanovich is similar to Herder in a lot of ways. So I think the dynamic would, would be pretty similar to, to what you see there. Um, it's just, it's been weird with Trey this year where he just doesn't look as aggressive yeah. from game to game. You know, some games he'll come out and take 20 shots and then other games, like a couple nights ago, he takes nine shots, no threes. Uh, he had the protest game after the, the Collins argument in the film session a few weeks ago, oh, yeah. you know, where he's just not shooting the ball and, and part of that is they're forcing the ball out of his hands and he's still mm-hmm. getting assists and all of that. So it's not as simple as just he's not shooting, but there are, it does feel like he's not making a point to force the issue at times. Interesting. And I wonder if that's just adapting to the way defenses are playing. I wonder if that's him trying to figure out how to play with a more talented team around him, which is something he's never had to do in his NBA career or in his college career, frankly, or at any point in his entire life. So <laughs> I think he's, he's having to figure out how to share the offense for the first time ever. And that's, that's kind of tricky. I, th- I could see how that would lead to games where you're really being aggressive and assertive and then games where you maybe hold back a little bit because you're worried, okay, am, am I getting this guy his touches? Does this guy need to be more involved? Am I, am I taking the right amount of shots? Am I taking too many shots, too few? That's, that's a hard thing for a young point guard to figure out. So um, I think for him, it's just once that role gets clarified, once it becomes clear what it is he's supposed to do and what his ideal role in this offense is, that's when things will start to take off. It's just a matter of when that's going to happen, if it's going to happen this year. Um, and and at, if so, at what point does it happen? Yeah. Well, I mean, even despite shaky play, will probably be an all-star this year and the all-star game coming to Atlanta, all the big names coming to the A, that's got to be pretty exciting for you as a sports writer. Yeah. You know, in some ways it's no different than if it were in like Los mm-hmm. Angeles or something though, because I'm not going, you know, I'm not going to like go downtown to the all-star events <laughs> or anything. You know, I'm just, I'm just going to stay in my house the way I have for the last uh, 11 months. So I guess at that point it'll be a, a full year. So uh, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting just sort of the, the idea that I'm in somewhat close proximity to all the, the all-stars, mm-hmm. but in other ways it's like, well, you know, it could be in yeah. Indonesia and it would make no difference. <laughs> no difference. Set the time change. Right. Yeah. Um, but now Ben, I, I want to enter one of my favorite uh, parts of the podcast. I call it the quick hitter section, rapid fire questions. I uh, get your responses to all sorts of questions from NBA to Westminster to, to anything, Indiana. Um, but to start your favorite NBA player right now and then all time. Mm. Right now it would be, so one of Steph Curry, Nikola Jokic, CJ McCollum, and Joe Ingles. Okay. Okay. I can take four, four works, but then yeah. all the time. Uh, if I had to pick one, I'll, I'll go with, uh, I'll go with Nikola Jokic. Okay. Okay. Um, your pick for MVP and then NBA champion. Um, I know it's early, but if yeah. you have it, 
Well, quickly to answer the all-time uh, favorite player question, I think Steve Nash is the guy for me. Steve Nash, and yeah, yeah, I like I like the passing and shooting, mm-hmm. and making efficient point guards. Um, okay, MVP this year. Oh man, that is that's really. T- I'll give you a, a a little bit of a cop out answer again. I, I think <laughs> Joel Embiid, Nikola Jokic, LeBron James, Steph Curry, and Kawhi Leonard are the ballot, the five man ballot in some order. I probably would put. I'd probably put Embiid near the top of that. I'd put LeBron closer to the top. Um, At this point, I would still probably lean Embiid. Although I think Jokic is making it a close race. LeBron is obviously going to be heard from. Um, Steph, I think, is improving his case. And Kawhi is just kind of flying under the radar, and it wouldn't surprise me if he picks up steam over the course of the year. But right now, I'll go with Joel Embiid until further notice. And then NBA champion, what team you got? I think... You know, using the the sort of Occam's Razor theorem here, I think it still has to be the Lakers. You know, they're yeah. they're the favorite; they're the best team. As much as you can talk about the Jazz and how good they look, and the Clippers, who I think are being slept on slightly, the Bucks, who you know are, are really really solid again and are going to have to prove it in the playoffs. The Sixers look good. As much as you can talk about all these secondary teams, I think the Lakers still have the best player. They still have the best complementary player. And I think they just have the best team. They have the best two-way balance. I think they're adaptable. I think they're versatile, which is going to serve them well. In the postseason, they play really good defense. They can they can play different styles uh, and put a lot of ball handling on the floor. They can put less ball handling and more defense on the floor. So, I mean, they're vulnerable, but I think they have to be considered the favorite right now. Yeah. And then when you talk about Steve Nash, how do you think he's going to fare as an NBA coach, not a player? Well, so far, so good. I mean, he's going to have to figure out that defense, but I don't know if that's going to be an indictment on him necessarily because I don't know what coach could get a lot <laughs> out of that team defensively. They've actually been better than I expected on defense, uh, both in terms of efficiency and just watching them. I, I think their containment at the point of attack is fairly decent. They've got a few guys that can defend on the ball. And then offensively, I, like, I mean, it's easy to say like Kyrie, Durant, Harden, you know, you have those guys, obviously they're going to have a good offense, but I think that the coaching staff has done a pretty good job putting those guys in position to succeed and, and working out the rotation to get the most out of each guy um, and, and sort of arranging the, the offense in a way that's, that's going to get the most out of the, you know, cause you're going to have a good offense, no matter what you could, you could run the most archaic, you know, old fashioned offensive system in the world. And you're still probably going to have a top half offense with that kind of talent. Right. But to get to the absolute best of the best, which they're they've been since that trade, you do need good coaching and you do need a good system. And I think they've had that. Mm -hmm. Favorite class or teacher at Westminster. Wow. Wow. Uh, (laughs) God, I have to think back for that. It feels like it's been a million years since I was, uh, I mean, Fred's, I have to throw Fred Scott's name out there for teacher. He was the chorus teacher for a long time. And he ended up going on to direct Chanticleer, which is like one of the best choirs in the world after leaving Westminster. So obviously he is as good a teacher as you could possibly hope to find. Frank Finswaite is, uh, is always, an, is he still there? Mr. He's still Finswaite? there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He, I had him twice. He was, he was fantastic. I always liked him. I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting someone, but I think those are the two that immediately jumped to mind. And you were a big Mac guy, right? You're saying in the uh, men's. I was, yes, I was in Mac for three years. Yeah. We just had the uh, Valentine's day concert. So, Oh yeah. I, I remember those, 
those concerts. Those, those days, right. Um, advice for people who might want to pursue a career in the sports world, like myself. Yeah. Um, God, there, there's, it takes a lot. That's, that's, I think the first thing is, you know, there's a lot of things I could say here. I think generally, this is an obvious one, but you have to do the work. I mean, that's, that's kind of the main thing. You have to, you have to know what you want to do and you have to really pursue it. Like it's not going to fall in your lap. You're not going to get good by accident. It, it's not, no, no one's going to like, you know, it, it's, it's not going to happen for you. You have to make it happen. Right. You know? Um, so that would be, that would be, I guess, number one. The other thing is just like, be a, a good person. You know, I think another obvious one, but I think if you form the right relationships and if you know the right people, and you're able to get your foot in the door, you're, you can, you can go places and you can sort of make your own luck in that way, okay. but you're not going to get those relationships. You're not going to, people aren't going to let your foot get into the door. You're not going to, the right people aren't going to want to talk to you. Mm-hmm. if You're not a respectful, kind, decent, humble, hardworking person, you know? So I think that goes for, for writing that goes for broadcasters that goes for whatever you want to do. Um, you know, like treat people with respect, but yeah, the same way you would treat anyone in any profession. Um, but I, I think it really applies. Cause like I can say from experience, like the, the most helpful connection that I have that is, that has helped me in the sports media world um, is someone that I, I really don't even consider like a, a connection. I, I consider them like a friend and they've, oh, wow. they've been very helpful for me, but that's been a byproduct of just having a human relationship with them and, you know, knowing yeah. like not, um, not badgering them about, Hey, can you help me do this? Can you do this for me? X, Y, and Z, you know, getting to the point where like pe- people want make yourself someone that people want to help. I guess that's the yeah. way to put it. Um, and, and, you know, so that's, that's probably the simplest explanation. And then I, I'd say the third thing is, is try to be versatile okay. you know, because it's, it's possible that you end up doing, the exact thing that you want to do, but in all likelihood, you're going to have to branch out and do other things. You're going to have to start somewhere where you don't want to be and then work your plate yourself to the place where you do want to be. Maybe you're like me and you get to college wanting to do broadcasting and you pivot to writing because you find out that that's something you like too. Um, so you have to make yourself versatile. You have to make yourself um, multifaceted so that you're able to, to succeed in, in multiple areas in multiple ways. Interesting. Wise words there, Ben. Thank you. Um, most memorable game you've called WCAT and then Indiana. Most memorable WCAT game was game three of the 2013 baseball state finals. Wow. Where uh, I think, no, I guess it'd be game two was probably the more memorable one. The cats were up one, nothing in the series. They go into game two with a, a lead going into the, end of the game and uh the left fielder i won't say his name but the left fielder <laughs> makes a, a critical error that that basically i think it i think it resulted in like a bases clearing triple or something oh god allowed um allowed love it to get back in the game love it ends up taking game three and winning the series and it was just like this huge momentum shift i have i still have a couple of friends who are on that team and we even to this day we talk about like hey man can you believe game two of that state championship <laughs> you know tough. So that, that was a, yeah, that, that was a tough one. And obviously as a Westminster student, I did have some rooting interest in that game, even if I tried to mask it. 
So that's still one that even for me, not being on the team, I'm like, man, I wish Westminster love it though. That's high stakes too. Very high stakes. Yeah. yeah. A fun, fun series to call definitely, but I just wish the results had been mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. And then for non Westminster, a lot of the good games I covered, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I guess it doesn't just have to be as a broadcaster. Um, covering the, the big 10 tournament, just I, I did it three times, so I'll just lump those together. Those yeah. were really cool because, in part, because I wasn't covering a lot of it. You know, I covered the Indiana games, but a lot of it I was just kind of as a, a viewer, which was really cool to kind of be up close. Right. Um, but if I had to pick a, a game that I was specifically covering, Indiana Michigan State in East Lansing in 2019, mm-hmm. I think IU was unranked and Michigan State was like top 10. IU loses Juwan Morgan to an injury in the first half, who's their best player, really their only good player that year. And somehow they end up pulling off the upset. And it was just oh, like, wow. like, and again, I, I, I'm not an Indiana fan. I wasn't rooting for them or anything. It was just very weird, very kind of surreal just to see this happen on the road. It was an amazing game. And it was, it was a cool thing to, to be at and to say, you know, I was in the building for that game. You know, it's one of those that I, look back pretty fondly on. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, biggest three pointer you've ever made. Mm. I think it has to be against North Atlanta at home in 2015, either 2014, 2015, 2015 season. Uh, again, I didn't play very well in that game. I, I totally was not the reason our defense got us back into that game. I wasn't <laughs> even on the floor when we got into the game. I literally was not on the floor in crunch time and they put me in for the final offensive possession. And then I ended up making a corner three to, win the game. So I, I can't take a lot of credit for that, but I think just results-based, I mean, that it, it, game-winning three-pointer has to be the, the biggest three. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. North Atlanta, too, at home. Had to be a, been a big one. Um, it was a big one. Favorite NBA writer or broadcaster? Rob Mahoney, NBA writer, uh, currently at The Ringer. I discovered him when he was at Sports Illustrated when I was in college, and uh, easily the single biggest influence on my writing style the things I focus on, the, the way I view the game, he's, he's uh, just a brilliant writer, first of all. He could write about, I don't know, uh, gardening, and I would read it. I'd read every single word. I mean, it could be anything. Um, but you combine that with something that I actually care about, which is basketball. Uh, he has just an amazing mind for the game, really sees things in a unique way, super insightful, and also conveys it in just the yeah. most beautiful language you could imagine. Wow. Well, I think that'll just about do it for today's podcast. Go give Ben a listen on his podcast, Read and React. And Ben, again, I really appreciate you spending some time with me. No problem, man. Thanks for having me. And and good luck moving forward. I can tell that you are much better at this than I was at the same age. Um, so hopefully, uh-huh. I mean, not hopefully, certainly you have a bright future ahead of you and hopefully uh, even brighter than mine and, and everyone who is a contemporary of mine. You guys, WCAT keeps on kind of pushing things forward from when I was there. So it's, it's cool and exciting to watch y'all do that. Thank you. That's really kind. And again, go uh, give Ben a listen. He does great work and read some of his articles. Um, well, I think that's just about going to wrap us up. Go Hawks, go Hoosiers and go Cats. Thanks, Ben.